Listeners, subscribers, swan divers, strangers, whoever's out there, good morning from a rainy Thursday in Philadelphia. Being in Philadelphia, I am not in Grenada, which is where the U.S. men's national team either is right now or will be shortly, as they prepare to face Grenada tomorrow evening in the next chapter of CONCACAF Nations League. They'll return to Orlando to host El Salvador on Monday, and to consider those matches and the broader context of CONCACAF and U.S. soccer in this unique moment, I roped Charles Boehm of MLSsoccer.com and USsoccerplayers.com onto joining me on the Swan Dive. Charles is better positioned than me and most to have this conversation, for he is not simply a fascinating guy with lots of experience writing about U.S. soccer, but he also lived in Grenada, where he spent time as a Peace Corps volunteer. This is a pretty philosophical discussion, so if you are looking for lineup debates, you could be disappointed, but perhaps you'll find that the topics we do get into have wider-ranging implications and longer-lasting effects. We talk about Charles's career, we talk about the state of journalism, and more specifically, soccer journalism in North America. We attempt to define this generation, this soccer-playing USMNT generation. We wax poetic about the CONCACAF octagonal and the riches gained from difficulty. Charles wonders if we've ever flown too close to the sun. Charles considers the roster and Gio Reyna's reintroduction. And then we talk about Grenada as a place and the Caribbean. We talk about traveling, about the Peace Corps, about being a de facto ambassador of the U.S., and about the tied fates between our country and the ones spread across CONCACAF. And then we wrap up thinking about MLS. One quick note is that this was recorded last week, last Wednesday in particular, and then technology smited my progress, demised a laptop, and a week later I have finally been able to restore, edit, and publish what is a fascinating conversation, though recorded on a subpar device on my part. Apologies for that. If you enjoy this conversation, please remember to like it, share it, leave a comment, and let me know what questions you'd have for Charles next time. Enjoy! Charles, welcome to the Swan Dive. How are you feeling today? Uh, I'm feeling great. I feel very fortunate and blessed and honored to be on the show. As a subscriber, uh, I'm happy to be bringing value, hopefully, to my to the subscription uh, for myself and others. Thank you for supporting by subscribing and supporting by being on this channel. You are <laughs> a font of knowledge, a joy to be around in the press box. And you have some interesting stories related to the teams that we're going to be playing shortly. So one question I have for you is, first of all, how did you get into this field that we're in? How did you start writing about soccer professionally? Ooh, well, in answering that question, I'm going to show my age. Uh, there's always someone older on the beat, right? But there's all, definitely always someone younger. <laughs> this was, uh, writing about soccer was a, a side hustle for me for a long time. I live in D.C., but I'm, I grew up elsewhere. And as we'll probably discuss in a bit, uh, I, did, uh, I served in the Peace Corps after I finished college. And uh, when I moved to D.C., I just was applying for jobs while helping out um, a family member, my sister, with uh, child care and, and running her household. And, uh, and I applied for a job on, on what old timers may remember was ESPN's uh, OG soccer site, SoccerNet. And uh, they were looking for beat writers in MLS markets. And it, it turned out that um, my content got sold for a while to a few different sites. And then the website that um, back then was MLSNet more recently is known as MLS Soccer, um, was sort of taking shape. And so I was a DC United beat writer as a side hustle in addition to a nine to five, just squeezing it in um, for for almost, a di- uh, I guess it was seven or eight years. And then uh, uh, it's been almost 10 years now or about 10 years since I was able to to go full time in the, in the space. Um, and I'm still, uh, as you can probably relate to, you know, s- still trying to uh, to sling soccer hustle up a living in this field and and fortunate that i can say that i, I generally do you know uh there's not enough jobs and we don't any of us get paid enough but but at least we're 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 surviving you know and it's uh it's a, a good challenge 
when you think about the things that have changed in the landscape of specifically journalism and soccer journalism in the U.S. since you got started and have evolved in your career, do you feel excited about the direction that things are going? Or does some part of you feel incredibly jaded and pessimistic about the present state of journalism? Yes. <laughs> uh, yes, both are both of those are accurate descriptions. Um, you know, I... We've. I find myself uh, talking and writing a lot about uh, over the years, over the long term, I guess, about this growth narrative that we have around soccer in this country, or in, the, in these two countries, really, because it's a it's a U.S. and Canadian story, and to a, to a similar extent, maybe to the the rest of North America. Um, you know, th- there's been constant growth and improvement uh, up to a point. I mean, I think not to get sidetracked, but that was a big part of the psychological collective shock. I think of Cuba in 2018 cycle for the USMNT was that sort of idea gets a reality check now and then this idea that always growing, always improving, because once you get through that, once you get off the floor and, and become sort of competent um, and then want to move from competent to excellent in, in any sphere of the game, you, you know, that's a much harder climb than, than just getting to respectability. So, um, and I think it's similar with, with the media landscape, you know, it's been growing. There's more jobs now than there were five, 10, 15 years ago. But that's all happening in 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 the wider landscape of uh, slow, agonizing death slash catastrophic evolution of of media in general in the United States. So, um, so as as much as there is to feel good about on the soccer side, there's there's so many headwinds, right? And there's so little security. So, again, I feel very fortunate to have been able to 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 find a sustainable living, but. It, it took a long time and it's way, way more difficult than it should be. And there's still just not enough um, true commitment. Uh, and, and I know it's more complicated than that, but if we want to keep things simple. Th- there's not enough commitment from, from institutionalized media and, and the, the people that at the executive level that sign the checks and, and make the big decisions. Where does that reticence come from? Is that a lingering bias, a skepticism of soccer that hangs over? I, I don't know. I think, I think it's, um, I think we'll, we may have to schedule a second pod for this because it's going to be the whole podcast. <laughs> yeah. There's so many layers because, um, you know, there, there has been proof of concept in a lot of ways, but you're still, you're still dealing with, um, questions about and doubts about, um, uh, sustainability. Right. I mean, I've seen, uh, so many different outlets and, and startups come and go, it sort of felt like for a while there, the, the rule of thumb was like an 18 month life cycle on a new site or, or a new entity, no matter how much backing or boldness or, you know, funding there was. And that's just, that's, that's just difficult. I mean, that just per- persists, you know, and, and I think a lot of it, you, you can sort of compare it to the, the broadcast sphere, right? Where just as the sport starts to cross over into the mainstream and, and, and maybe be ready to vie for, you know, to really, fight in the ratings wars and, and compete for spots on network and, and cable television. Um, the people that make those decisions see it as a, see soccer as a, as a tentpole for their niche subscription services and their streaming platforms rather than a, a contender to, to, to get onto the airwaves. So uh, and I think that's kind of the backdrop to MLS's big Apple TV deal. Um, you know, CBS getting into the space, which is super awesome and they're making big investments but there's and and so there's it's better than zero um, you know um, soccer matches and soccer content on, on a on their their mainstream platforms. But it's still you know they and many others are still kind of see it as a niche sport in in some level. You know, definitely. And I mean, I think I'm excited about the Apple deal. But I think, as you said, it is part and parcel of that trend. I think the future will be very interesting to track and whether or not that's they're able to grow interest on that platform. In terms of interest in the game, I mean, do you think that this is the most exciting generation that you've tracked as a writer, writing about the national team, writing about MLS? I certainly think that the the um, infrastructure factors have led to this long, long range. Um, uh, I guess I would say not, we're not efficient yet at identifying and cultivating players, but simply making marginal gains in trimming down inefficiency and building some kind of 
you know, better pathways and pipelines has, has, has really upped the, the regularity of things and the, the density and the, the, the predictability through, of, of talent coming through. I, I do, I have, you know, I had interesting discussions with um, some more veteran observers on the scene who will point to different teams or windows in time with the you know the USM and T in particular and say, are you re- are we really certain that this group is better than that group or would beat the current group or you know the current group would, would be you know you know who's really um have we really come that far in terms of the sort of snapshot view. Um, and I think there's great debates to be had there because the the academy landscape has brought big improvements, but there's also sort of been a you know I guess inevitable erosions of of familiar things that that used to be part of you know the american sort of players blueprint i guess or, or identity so i think there's a more of a push pull there maybe than than golden generation shorthand uh would allow for um but for sure it's not so feast or famine based on a good crop you know or a good coach from year to year or cycle to cycle what do you think has been eroded uh, you know again and it's very easy uh it's very very um dangerous to sort of slip into, you know, the old timer, um, old men yells at cloud kind of mindset here. And I, I, I'm, I don't think that way, but I've had, I've, I've, you know, guys like Tony Miola and uh, um, who else, if, you know, you talk to some of the other ones that have been around a long time, even Dunny, Brian Dunseth, uh, Michael Lewis, um, you know, you, you talk to guys who've, who've, who've been there, done that, or have seen, seen it all, even for, for much longer than I have. And they'll talk about, you know, the obstacles that that existed before like needed to be attacked and a, and a lot of the things that made life difficult for for players to to climb the ladder and maximize their potential have been addressed and that's good but there was this um, spirit of tenacity that came from from having this really chaotic incomplete you know meta scenario uh, growing up playing the sport in this country and it's it's there. I think there can be a little bit of a grit factor there. Um, and, you know, I had a really fascinating um, interaction going back a few years now where I, uh, I'll, I'll keep this short, but I'd have, I had, I ended up drinking beer uh, around a big table full of like college D one men's college coaches and other people sort of in and around this, this, um, that this world got, you know, talking about guys. And it was unfortunately almost all men at the table, but um, these coaches had, you know, ran big time programs, had won championships, had cultivated some of the, and played a big role in growing generations of, of future professionals. And one of them, I'll keep this anonymous, but it's a, a division one powerhouse coach told this story about one of his early season games going across country to play another, a a major powerhouse, right. In an early season game. So it wasn't a conference game or anything, but opening weekends. And he had a couple of his blue chip freshman recruits that he had come. This is before the DA, the development academy had shut down and and morphed into what we now call MLS next. Um, But he had these, these blue chip kids that on paper and in terms of sheer like skill set were ahead of the, you know, were, were the best in the country and the best that we'd produced and a step ahead of, of their predecessors. But then when they had to go and fight and, and scrap and, and adapt to this new level in a, in front of a hostile crowd of, you know, Bain college students jeering and, and, you know, your every move and, um, and they were just deer in headlights and he had to do the old hairdryer treatment at halftime. And um, can I curse? Can I curse on your show? You can curse as much as you want. So this coach is telling the story and he's like, he's having to get up at these, these primo, you know, youth national team type kids and say, these games fucking matter, right? This matters. People care about this result because these kids that a lot of them had spent the vast majority of their developmental experience playing in front of like 20 people, right? Like maybe a sideline uh, with college recruiters and some parents mm-hmm. and that's it. And it's like, we did create a, a, a much more technically proficient way of, of nurturing and cultivating players. But at some point, like separating that from the high school soccer environment and the community structures that, you know, where you, where you have stakes and you have status that apply is applied to a result, right? That intensity, we still haven't like replicated that. We have, we finally have that. I think on some level at the professional first team and, and, you know, first and uh, first and second divisions, but it doesn't necessarily always trickle down. Right. So, um, and I think maybe you, you could allege that, that that was a factor in, in moments like Kuva, but, but again, I, I don't want any of this to come off as like a, a impugning the younger generations, right? Like they, they are better and, and the cream usually rises to the top in every sense, not just, 
technical ability, but also in mindset and, and intensity. And you just have to look at guys like Tyler Adams and, and, uh, and so, so many others uh, on the, in the current pool who, who exemplify that. Definitely. And you were in Qatar covering the team at the World Cup and you had been on the road for at least some of the games. I know you were in Mexico City. Do you think that the first of all, the CONCACAF octagonal as for for one experience run tough experience, difficult away environments? Did that in any way cultivate a toughness that might have been missing? You think that came out in the World Cup performance? I think you can, I think you can track the, cause it's, it's, it's one thing to have those experiences as an individual. It's another to, 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 to be sort of fired in that uh, cauldron collectively. Right. And, and that's the, 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 you know, you want players to experience that at every rung on the ladder, but then ideally, you know, a group goes through experiences together that, that create a bond that, that is lasting and that is, that is strong. And I think I was in it every game. I think I made it to like two thirds of the, of the um, Ocho games or thereabouts. And I can definitely say, looking back, like covering that U S Canada game in Nashville, the first window, and, and then all the way along and, you know, these different signposts along the way, you could see that group um, live it because there's, there's some things that you can't, um, you, you can only prepare for so much. I mean, a lot of them had youth national teams experiences and had club experiences that, that prepared them to an extent, but then going through it, I mean, they, you know, they got, they, they got worked, they got exploited, outthought, and, and to some extent outfought by Canada in that that draw, right? And there was, this was in the wake of uh, the West McKinney suspension and, you know, for violation of team rules and, and, and Bearhalter too. I mean, it was a coaching staff as well. Part of the the risk factor that the Federation leadership of the time took on by hiring him was, was this was a coach you had done it as a player, but hadn't done it as a coach. And those are still different things. So, so I think for sure you saw that and, and it, and though that there's a collective memory that's, that's carried forward. And I think you did, you did see that in Cutter and, and for sure, I mean, everybody, I got to talk to Tim Ream yesterday and, uh, and do a, a great chat with him uh, for a, a feature piece. And um, he talked about, I mean, the first words out of his mouth when the world cup came up was disappointment, you know, and even whatever fans felt right about that, that, that round of 16 match against the Netherlands was exponentially. So for the players, they were not just, you know, spouting off motivational nonsense when they talked about being planning to win the tournament. I mean, they had the mindset that they could go further than anyone from this country's men's program had ever gone and, and were were deeply, I think hurt that it didn't break their way. So, um, so yeah. And, and that's why I'm, you know, as much as uh, excitement as there's around the 2026, I'm going to miss the, the CONCACAF gauntlet because there's just, there's just nothing like it. And, and, you know, we got, you get a little taste of it with, with CONCACAF champions league this week and last, like it's just so special and it's just such a, such a grind unlike anywhere else. I agree completely. And yeah, the octagonal, it's special. It's unique. There's nothing like it. It bonds the team. It bonds us as a fan base, as a media community. I mean, it's just, you're on this winding path together and you come out the other end, um, a bit wiser, a bit, a bit tougher as a community, maybe when you, so it's interesting also for you to bring up your conversation with Tim Ream. And I don't know if I want to say I'm encouraged by him using the word disappointment, but I think you do want proof from these guys that they feel like they did have more in them. I think the fan base really wants there to be more in this generation Following from that World Cup, though, we're in such a state of limbo and, you know, we're coachless, we're, there, there's no one, no clear direction, no one clearly in charge. They're looking for a new sporting director. If you were a historian, maybe 15, 20, 30 years from now, explaining this moment in USMNT history, what would you, what's happening? Where are we right now in the timeline? Uh, the shorthand that I've, that I've used a couple of times is um, so much work and so much heart and soul and blood, sweat and tears and all that w- was poured into getting to this point. And it was a long climb from, from the end of 2017 and from the depths that the program sort of plunged into at, at that point. And, and it's, and you have to give credit to many people at many levels who, who put in the grind to, to get to this point where, where they could reach the knockout stages of a world cup. But it's it was all to get back to where to a vantage point that we had taken for granted, right? That we had been to in 2010 and 2014, and and there's something um, both fascinating and I think probably um, infuriating. Maybe maybe it's like a 
uh, maybe it's a lesson from God or the the fates or the universe, you know, however you want to look at it, that um, you should never take take things for granted. And and I think many of us in all um, areas of of the soccer community kind of started to take for granted that okay, we're gonna we're gonna be at every World Cup. And then the question is, how can we get, you know, become regulars in the knockout rounds? How can we be serious contenders to, to make a truly deep run and, and be in the mix, um, you know, for the for the fi- the semifinals and, and beyond? And logically, that made sense because that was the next phase. But um, it, it's easy to, uh, you know, there's there's an Icarus kind of story here, I think, you know. Definitely. And yeah, I guess the next phase, we're kind of eking our way there, nudging our way there, but we're not quite there yet. Although as of today, we've got a roster. We've got competitive matches at the end of the month. I was not able to attend the press conference with Anthony Hudson. Did he have anything interesting to say? Were you there to hear him talk about the players he called in? He did. I, I thought he was, um, Anthony's, um, and I can brag a little bit here uh, in the sense that like, I've kind of had an eye on him as a coach going back to when um, his, I think his first head coaching job or one of his first was with a now long since defunct USL team that was playing in, I don't remember if, they, if it was technically the second or third tier of professional landscape at that point, but Real Maryland was this uh, little, little startup in Montgomery County here in the DC suburbs. And, and he was one of their first coaches as like, I think he was not, wasn't even 30 yet. Uh, you know, and he's always been this kind of coaching phenom in part because of, you know, growing up in a, a soccer kind of royalty, English soccer royalty family and having uh, connections to uh, the Redknapp family and all that sort of stuff. But um, he's very good at, at he, he answered every question, or at least I'll say he addressed every question without necessarily always giving the most satisfying answer that you that you would maybe hope for. But to his credit, he doesn't he doesn't bob or weave or, or whatever. But but he's trying to keep, I think, that balance of. Um, you know, speaking honestly without making headlines or putting anybody on blast or, or giving anyone or anything short shrift. I think, he, you know, obviously the, the elephant in the room still, and probably for a while yet, is the Bearhalter-Reyna uh, controversy. And I, I, I again, I, I think we should not take for granted the, the manner in which Hudson has addressed it um, without necessarily enlarging it any further than it, than it already is. He knows it's an issue. He knows that it reflects on the program and it re- and it reflects on on Geo, but only to a certain extent, right? And and trying to dis- separate him from the actions of his parents, or I don't know if we still need to say. Perhaps it's fair to say the alleged actions of his parents, and maybe we don't have the full story, even though we've gotten this lengthy report um, on Monday. Um, and and I think he's done the right thing, which is to to keep this player in the circle. This player who was a member of the squad, was a member of the community that they built and who was accepted for his, you know, whose, whose mistakes were, were discussed and dealt with at the time in the tournament. And, and what, what really happened, and I think there'll always be a sliding doors moment here, um, as, as much as Greg Berhalter got right in, in that process, um, I think the real sliding doors moment was, was him speaking out in a way that he thought he was on stable ground to do so at the leadership conference. And to learn about uh, Chatham House rules and, and what that term means, and and uh, the absence of a of that concept, I guess in 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 sports media, uh, has been sort of fascinating. And I, I I can't help but think that we would be talking about his uh, new contract and his second cycle in charge today if that hadn't happened. Because as best we can tell, that what I thought was and, and what a lot of other people who who've been in in and around his position in the industry have said is he was actually, while you can blame him for saying anything publicly about internal team matters, there were, there was wrong doing, there were mistakes made within the the group and he discussed it in a way that clearly we can say he shouldn't have, but he was trying, you know, kept a a modicum of an anonymity um, to try and make it a happy ending. And, and it's what happened around geo at the world cup happens a lot. And I've had this conversation with DeAndre Yedlin. It was a part of my conversation with Tim Ream. Um, and I think there's probably others. And maybe Walker Zimmerman addressed it on Media Day, MLS Media Day in January. You know, stuff happens. There's conflicts. There's big personalities. There's high stakes. And you you try and deal with it as a group 
while abiding by your your culture and your code and and move forward in a way that works best and and they did that and then it was only well after that that it became public and thus you know drove these two parents who I, I actually have a lot of empathy for in, in a lot of ways to cross lines that couldn't be uh, gone back from it's a pretty heartbreaking scenario from all angles that you look at it I yeah. think and I do think it Anthony Hudson bringing Reina in. He went to visit him in Dortmund, had a conversation with him. I think he should be applauded for the way it seems, at least, that he's been handling it. When Reina does come in, though, do you get a sense or do you imagine that there will have to be any peacemaking between Reina and other players on the team? Will there be any awkwardness? Do you think that any rifts could have formed? I mean, as you said, these things happen and other things that happen on teams is sometimes the superstars on the team don't get along or people competing for spots might not like each other. Do you think any of that will happen as Raina comes into camp? I think it's possible. Um, I, 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 they have, a, you know, they have a leadership council. So even with Tyler Adams, the captain not being in this camp, you know, they'll, they'll have a, they have a sort of a body that, that exists to address these things or um, be a go between, you know, the staff and the, and the players as needed. Um, I, I will, let me just, I should quote, you know, what, what Tim Ream uh, said, who is a member of that leadership council. He's the uh, oldest player on the team. I'm pretty certain. Um, and uh, he said, um, I'm trying to find it. He said, we, we handled that whole situation at the world cup. And for us, we've kind of moved past it. I reached out to a few guys, Geo included, just to kind of check in on everyone to make sure that everyone's heads were on right and thinking about nations league and what this new cycle means fully not knowing whether I'm going to be involved or not. It's our chance to move on further as players because that's what our job is. Our job is to play. Our job is not to worry about everything that's happening off the field. Yes, we do have to deal with certain aspects, of course, or things within the team setting that as a captain of a club, but also as part of a leadership group, we have to deal with. That's just the nature of a team sport. And so that's what we'll do and we'll move past it. We're a close-knit group, no matter what anybody says. Everybody is very, very close. Everybody gets on really well. And I think as we're looking forward to getting back on the bike, starting the new cycle. And I think that's fundamentally, you know, the blessing that, that players have, which is as much as they're in the public eye and they're in the firestorm, their focus can be very clear and they have games to play now. Finally, they don't have to deal with questions about stuff that happened out of their control or months ago. They, they can now talk about and focus on two opponents and defending this trophy and, and, you know, moving forward with the things that are within their grasp. Well said, and well said by Tim Ream, who is always great to talk to. What a, what an incredible leader and what an incredible story, the Tim Ream story and making the mark that he did at the World Cup. You love to see that for the guy. Looking at the rest of the ro- the rest of the roster, who are you excited to see in and is anyone left out that you're unhappy about? Uh, I mean, I wouldn't I wouldn't say unhappy. I'm, I'm intrigued by the way that they seem to be going about sort of splitting up uh, and getting the, uh, the, the squad in a way or the player pool to get the most out of these two games, which are in an international window. And then the, the just announced Mexico friendly next month, which is not in a window. Uh, I think that's the main reason. And, and Hudson spoke about this a bit. You know, the main reason that there's only one MLS player, Miles Robinson, it, then, you know, you'll, you'll have a, a, an MLS dominant or maybe entirely MLS based squad. I don't know. Next month. I think it's also, uh, <laughs> For for um, as much as Atlanta United fans might be sad to hear it, I think it's another signal that that Miles Robinson is playing out his contract and is ready to go and explore the European market as a free agent come winter time. Um, but wow, what a great statement of um, and reflection of his return to form after uh, the Achilles injury that he had, which can be really really devastating for players. Um, so that that is a fun plot line. I mean, you know. Reem and and I, I hope uh, I'm gonna flog real quick that my one v one with Reem uh, will come out later today today being Wednesday um, and I hope everybody reads it because he gave some great stuff about you know he's 35 but he just signed a new contract with Fulham he's he's played all but two minutes uh, uh, of the EPL season of one of the Premier League's you know biggest best surprises this season uh, overperforming fun to watch right and he's gonna he's now under contract there through age 30 or till age 37. Um, at least. And he said, it's my, it's mine until someone comes and takes it. Right. And so, um, you know, with, with no Walker Zimmerman, I'm intrigued to see who uh, starts uh, in these games at center back and, and how all that goes. And um, so that's a very interesting plot line. And then uh, maybe it's just recency bias, but uh, Alex, AKA Alejandro Zendejas now officially in the fold for good 
part of the mix, um, you know, how he's used and how he fits in with the group. I mean, it's, um, I personally rate him and I think, uh, and, and Hudson made clear that he's, he's not just for depth, right? He's a different profile of winger than, than many of the others they have in the pool at the moment. And, um, he spoke really, uh, sort of, um, uh, movingly or, or emotionally about how much he likes Zendejas, not just his skill set, but his mentality, the intensity and the, and the, the ferocity with which he plays. And so I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing him kind of wade in with these European guys, right. Who maybe have bigger reputations or perceived to be a step ahead of him. Um, and, and then, and then also what, you know, how those interactions go on the pitch. I hope we get to see him start at least one of these games. Yeah, he's definitely an exciting addition. And people can find your Tim Ream. Is that MLSsoccer.com? That's going to be on MLS Soccer, yeah. Nice. I'm going to keep a lookout for that. So this window, two games, obviously, I guess the main most immediate priority is win, progress in Nations League. But when you're looking at this window, what do you think are the most important things? And maybe even looking past this window, what are the most important things for the next, I don't know, four or five months? Yeah, so um, I mean, I think it's a question of holding serve in terms of results. They're they're pronounced favorites in both of these matches. I think El Salvador and Orlando could be a bit tricky, um, especially you know El Salvador have given the U.S. trouble, um, and we know Hugo Perez, their coach, uh, certainly knows the U.S. team and its players inside and out, and and has set his team up really well tactically. So I think that's going to be an interesting game. Um, Grenada is an overmatch opponent in. in certainly in terms of overall levels of depth and quality, but it's a long trip. It's there are challenges, but also opportunities. I think that come with that. Um, Even going, even if you start in in Florida, uh, I know from experience, it's a, it's a long flight. It's a a remote place and it's um, it's a different vibe when you're down there. And so I think that's going to be an experience um, for these guys to go through again. And, And again, and in the absence of a qualifying process, you have to try and make the most of this time together and, and these shared experiences. Um, so, you know, looking for, for, I think the, the aesthetics that you want um, and also, you know, the spirit that you want it. And really um, we, I think we spent so much time cussing and discussing coaches, right. And, and there's something specifically American in there. I think we kind of even overestimate and overweight the, the importance and influence of coaches in this sport. But now it's almost like there's almost like a control here, right. Whether you, um, whatever, you know, nobody really rates Anthony Hudson right now, fairly or not, just because his, his last job, you know, before joining the U.S. system and being, in, you know, the YNT coach before he joined Barrelder staff was was a very humbling, unsuccessful stint with the Colorado Rapids. So the perception is that he's not a high level coach. Right. I think that's a, a, a gro- an unfair generalization in a lot of ways. But you have a, a situation now where, you, you know, you have a holdover who is sort of preserving and extending the the culture and the ways of doing things with only minor tweaks from what we've seen so far. And, and the players have that have responsibility there. The players um, are still expected to defend the nation's league title that they hold currently. Um, assuming that the, the vacancy remains or the interim status remains well into the summer, as we've all been led to believe it will, the same will go for the gold cup title defense. So it's, it's on the players now. Right. Like the, the coach is the, the coach is going to try and I think set us a, a stable platform for them to perform and not mess around or tinker too much. And now the players, you know, sh- show show their ability to to take responsibility collectively. So I think that's interesting. Absolutely. And you mentioned the long flight to Grenada, which you have experience taking. <laughs> so that's a good segue. You spent a lot of time in Grenada. How did you find yourself there? Yeah, so um, when I was um, after I graduated college, I decided I wanted to to um, experience a different, uh, a, a very different um, way of looking at the world, and and go and and have some adventures if I could if I could um, weasel my way into some. And so I joined the Peace Corps and ended up getting assigned to Grenada. I was a youth and community development volunteer in in Peace Corps Eastern Caribbean, which administers Grenada and several other small island nations down there. So I lived in, in St. Lucia for a little while during while training. And then I, I spent two plus years in Grenada. Um, and actually nine 11 happened um, a few months after I got there. So it was a very interesting time to be an American abroad, very interesting um, culture and country um, to, to, to experience and to really get to know. And then uh, also a fascinating football and culture. I was super, super lucky that I got to play um, 
in the uh, in local parish leagues and coach some kids teams locally, and then also play for my local uh, Grenadian Premier League <laughs> team, such as it is, um, and and really connect with my um, community and 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 people around me in a way that uh, I think was special. Even you know, I, I used to joke that um, I think I could have built a hospital with my bare hands, and I still don't think I would have been um, remembered as much as I was known and remembered for, for playing soccer, you know, and I, I got this early, early in adulthood, I got this real visceral experience of the sports unifying power, you know, and, and the, the global nature of it and the, the boundary crossing nature of it. So, um, so that was awesome. And, and, um, and I still, you know, one of my former teammates uh, while I was there is on the uh, coaching staff of the Grenada national team. Uh, So I'm, I'm, it's just like this awesome, weird little, uh, connection I have and, and, uh, considering it's a, a 14 by 21 mile Island with a hundred thousand people living there. Um, it, it's, it's funny how much I've crossed paths with it, uh, since, uh, since I left. Yeah. I mean, can you feel the closeness of a, of a community of that size? Does it, did it feel like you were a celebrity on that Island over the course of your years there? <laughs> I wouldn't use celebrity. Um, but we used to joke that, uh, that Peace Corps volunteers more, more than even more than a typical young person, you, you sometimes feel like you're the star of your own movie, you know, and you, you're having these incredible experiences in a lot of ways before you can fully, um, you know, before you have the experience in life to fully process them. Um, so even though it's a long time ago now, I, I, um, I still carry all that stuff with me. I'm, I'm probably in the sport and, and you know, working in, in the business that I'm in um, because of those experiences. And um, it is a fundamentally different like way of looking at the world when you're in such a small place kind of on the, you know, for, for on the periphery in, in terms of how the, the, the rest of the world, you know, views, right. The way economically and politically, when you, when you're in the United States, you're, you're at the center of the action and, and smaller countries that have less power and, and, and less juice, I guess, on the, in the global stage, uh, it is very, um, is very different. You know, they, they say when uncle Sam sneezes, we catch a cold. That's like a common saying down in those little islands where, you know, there's tons of my out migration and there's tons of persistent problems. Even once you've dealt with the, um, the fundamental issues of, of, you know, clean water, housing, um, basics, right. You know, and get a standard of living up, up higher than it is in other parts of the global South, then you're still dealing with so many other challenges, right. With crime and brain drain and, um, economic limitations that, that just a small economy is faced with. So, so it was, um, it was, uh, it was unforgettable, you know, and, uh, and, and I urge everybody like whether you're, whether you're going to this game next week or you just, uh, are, are planning a, uh, a beach vacation or a trip to the Caribbean, uh, add, add Grenada to your list. Uh, it's a really special place. Although lots of those places, I got to, to visit St. Vincent and Dominica and Antigua and a lot of those other, those other, uh, Antilles are, are just incredible. And, and it's a place where your tourist dollars, um, especially if you interact with the community as much as you can, you know, um, your, your dollars really go a long way and, and, uh, their fates are, are tied up in ours. Really well said. I- I believe, I'm not 100% sure about this, but I think the Peace Corps has evolved to, in the present moment, you can choose where you want to go, or at least like you pick a region. Was that the case for you? Or were you in the era where it was completely random? You had no idea where you were going and you were assigned to Grenada? I don't know. I know things, you know, things have evolved. And so I can't speak to the the specifics of the current situation. Um, and, and I know they've been in a, um, you know, the, as with so much of the rest of civilization, Peace Corps was really hit hard uh, by COVID and, and was, I think is just now starting to try to get back to normal from having had to basically roll up everything. Right. Because um, it's, there's a challenge with Peace Corps, which is uh, I think a fundamental question is, is, is it a developmental, a, a, a development body or a experiential body? Right. So you're trying to send people to, uh, to countries that, that need help that, can use any different sorts of assistance in different fields to improve their quality and standard of living. Um, But it's also dominated by, you know, recent college graduates and young people and Americans who's, um, you know, who are fundamentally sort of not always um, fully professionalized in terms of like, uh, you know, living abroad and, and being, being developmental workers. Right. So the, the safety and well-being of, of volunteers often has to trump, 
you know, the, the stakes and the scale of the projects that you're working on. And I think that's just, you know, that's just part of the, the, the space that it, that it lives in. Um, I was, um, I did not get to choose where I wanted to go, but when you, um, when you, when you get into the application process, part of it is you go and have a face-to-face interview with, um, a recruiter at, at one of your regional offices. They have a network of offices around the country and they talk about, you know, what your, your skills are, what experiences you've had and, you know, where you've been and what you've done and what you may be able to offer. And so I had already spent a little bit of time in the Caribbean, um, the English speaking Caribbean doing a university uh, program to, uh, to a rural part of Jamaica uh, when I was in college. And so I had a little bit of experience with the culture and I felt like I had some skills that I could put to use there. So I, I guess I kind of was a- angling for that, but it still took a recruiter to sort of evaluate me and, and decide that, you know, that that was what made the most sense. And he basically, it came down to, he said, I, I've got this, you know, English speaking Caribbean posting that I think you'd be good for. And then there's, there's this French speaking Caribbean one and there's, you know, and he offered a couple other ones. So you, you don't, you don't know exactly which country you're going to until you've sort of signed on for it. But um, there was a big, big range. I mean, because I, it took the whole process from application to departure for me took about a year and that, that varies. And there's places that people want to go. There's high, you know, popular places that you may have to wait longer for or find a, have a hard time to get to. And then there's, there were at the time Central Asia and a lot of the former Soviet republics um, had real needs and, and had real challenges to them. That meant you could, you could get there faster, but you know, you're going to have a, um, let's just say a, a more, um, foreign sort of uh, experience from even from from you know what you could imagine in the United States and I, I would imagine there's still some level of that yeah I've, I've spoken to some people over the years that have done Peace Choir I actually so I taught English um, in Thailand which is you know a very I don't want to say it wasn't a serious experience but I have a lot of respect for people who do Peace Choir it's a two-year commitment a lot of people I know who have done Peace Corps are put in very trying circumstances. Um, it can be difficult subject matter that you're dealing with, depending. You could be dealing in with big geopolitical conflicts. I mean, w- were, was it challenging when you first arrived in, in Grenada? And maybe what were the big challenges of, of that experience? Meg, it sounds like we're going to have to delve into your your Thailand, your, your Landon Donovan type experience on, in, a, in a future yeah. pod. <laughs> Let's, yeah, schedule, let's schedule that when we're offline here. It sounds yeah. that's, I'm fascinated by that. That sounds incredible. <laughs> um, yeah, it's everywhere you go, right? So you know, some of the foundational um, sort of instruction or or preparation you get in training is um, you are all ambassadors, <laughs> unofficial ambassadors of the United States. In many cases, you are the first and maybe the only American that a lot of the people in your communities uh, will meet or interact with. And that's, you know, that's, that's heavy on some level, right? But it's also, there's, there's, there's magic there in terms of the, the possibility for, um, for connecting and, and presenting another view, uh, another side of this, you know, big and frankly imperialist country that, that is often, you know, we, we lead um, with our geopolitical aims in a lot of ways. Large swaths of the world see us as a, um, you know, world police or a, a sort of a global hegemon and and uh, and uh, the biggest, baddest armed forces, military presence on the planet. And so uh, when you can sort of just connect on a person to person level in a way that goes so much deeper than um, than headlines and and and, you know, news, television news. Right. That's um, that's meaningful. And that's cool. And, and of course, it cuts the other way, too. Right. You're your every mistake is magnified and, and you're often, especially in the, these in the small communities of the West Indies, um, we found that, you know, you're, you had to remember that it's a 24 seven job, right? You're even just walking down the street, you are, um, you are sort of the, an avatar of, uh, of the United States in so many, so many levels in so many ways. And, and our culture, uh, we export culture, right? That's one of the things we export them the, the most excessive aggressively and effectively, and that that often is you know leaves up, left us with stuff to deal with too you know, and, um, but it was um, I mean I, again I had I felt like I I gained so much more than I gave um, f- from the experience and I had a harder time adjusting culturally. My the quote unquote culture shock for me was much more acute coming home than it was leaving. Yeah, you, I think that makes a lot of sense, and, and you do hear that a lot. 
When what are you going to be looking forward to watching Grenada play um, when we do play them at their home? Yeah, I I uh, I, w- I made a point to um, to go down to Austin. I'm, uh, again, I'm lucky. I have some good friends down there um, that I can I can crash with. Uh, with you know, so many games in Austin these days, suddenly it's uh it's gone from a soccer non-entity to to uh, right at the center of things in the last uh, year or two here. Uh, but I was I made a point to go and watch. Grenada USMNT, the, the the home match at Q2 Stadium back in June. And I just, you know, I, I think um, it's so easy to just write off. And I understand that fans are, you know, look, everyone's looking at upward always, right? You're looking at, you know, who can we play that's better? Why are we playing these, uh, you know, part-timers and lower division English uh, hyphenated Grenada English guys who are going to beat four or five nil when we could or should be playing, you know, a, a European team in a friendly or, or, or more testing opposition. And that's, that's legitimate, but there's, it's also part of the tapestry of, of global soccer, I think is that, um, you know, you, you, you play your region first and foremost, and, and everyone is trying to, to get up to the U S level and everyone's trying to close the gap between U S and Mexico and Costa Rica and basically everybody else. And uh, they've uh, they're, they're working under those players and coaches and, um, that soccer community down there is working under really in, in challenging limitations, the financial limitations and um, scale limitations. And but but the the culture, I mean, the soccer is is just died into the the wool. I mean, it used to be that I think football and and cricket were sort of fifty fifty, and maybe sort of the way that baseball has receded a bit uh, generationally. Whereas and soccer has has stepped up um, in a lot of countries, it's kind of that way too. I mean, the global the global presence of of the EPL and other big leagues have definitely had an effect, and and big swaths of the of the young people down there are, are focused more on soccer. And there's so much talent. I mean, there's so so much ability, and they're just they're trying to get a chance, whether it's you know get a college scholarship or get abroad by any means to to just test themselves in in a bigger environment or or a higher level. And so, you know, I know why I know why they're written off as a national team, but there's so many stories, even in a team, in a, in a, a program like that. And there's, um, you know, from their coach, um, who's a Canadian guy who's who's, you know, just down there grinding, trying to make things better. Right. And he could easily have taken a less challenging job in, in a in the a more industrialized place. Um, but I respect him for for putting in the work and um and the players, you know, that if a lot of those guys could do it, and I mean, Shalry Joseph is a great example, right? He's probably the most prominent um, Grenadian player, or one of the most prominent. I mean, Jason Roberts is another standout player in the English leagues uh, for a long time, and you know, guys like that show you there's if if they can just get a chance and get out, and there's there's real quality there. And I mean, it's it's just like the you know the Haitian team in, in CCL this week, Violette, like there's there's so many limitations and it's um, it's really frustrating actually to me how, how the global environment, you know, things like visas and, and work permits um, make it even harder for these countries and, and people that are already, um, you know, climbing uphill to get to things that we take tend to take for granted. So, so just, um, you know, I guess that's what I would say. I'm, I'm rooting for those individual guys in particular to show that they belong to show maybe, you know, maybe, if, if even just one of those guys gets an opportunity to go to a bigger club or, or, or to go somewhere new f- from what they show, even in a one-sided, you know, CONCACAF Nations League game, then, um, then that's, that's awesome. Yeah, really, really well said. And on the note of things that we say or dismiss when we're playing in CONCACAF, I, I have to ask, I mean, um, this kind of went around and I participated in being amused by the dog that invaded the pitch in <laughs> El Salvador. Um, but some people were pushing back on our collective amusement. So if anyone is listening and doesn't know what I'm talking about, the Philadelphia Union played Alianza in the first leg of CONCACAF Champions League. And somewhere late in the second half, a dog was let out of the stands and ran onto the pitch in the middle of the game, a very adorable dog. Um, but some people were, were saying or took the conversation into a direction of sometimes we overdo the whole haha CONCACAF thing or this is so CONCACAF, um, making fun of the fields, making fun of the facilities, maybe. 
Do you ever feel like that happens? Do you think that we can be insensitive sometimes in our castigation of CONCACAF or making fun of infrastructure surrounding some of the locations they might play in and things like that? Yeah, I mean, tone matters. Um, but I think uh, something I come back to over and over again is we are part of CONCACAF. So any American or Canadian or, or, or Mexican who thinks that they're above it because of results like you, you're, you're very, very much missing the point. CONCACAF is a, a, a hot mess and it's a gorgeous hot mess. And we contribute to that, right? The, to me, there's no, and, 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 you know, to, to borrow uh, the maybe trite, but still useful uh, wisdom of Ted Lasso, right? Be curious, not judgmental and celebrate the, the quirkiness and the distinctiveness um, without looking down on it because um Listen, like uh, you can make jokes about a dog on the pitch or uh, a rain, you know, a rain soaked cricket pitch or, uh, you know, the big tree behind one goal in Siba in, in the, uh, the Violet Austin first leg. Like, but that's all part of like, to me, it's all part of the story and it's wonderful. And it's so much, uh, I'll take that over, you know, homogenized environments maybe that we might think are, are quote unquote better. Um, and, and Chuck Blazer, the American executive who was so corrupt that he could have a second apartment for his cats. That's part of CONCACAF too. The, the greed, the greed and the, and the commercialism that, that leads the U S to be the permanent home team in every gold cup ever, almost with a few scant exceptions. That's, that's part of the story too. We are, um, we are part of what makes CONCACAF a hot mess, um, just just like we experience the the consequences of it. Perfectly said. Yes, we are we are CONCACAF, and it is a gorgeous mess that we all love. A few final questions for you, Charles, and then I'll let you go. I want to ask you about MLS. So I meant to mention this earlier, but you are a freelance writer. You write for MLSsoccer.com um, as well as USsoccerplayers.com. MLS has changed a lot. Um, over the course of its reign, I think especially in recent years. What are you excited about in this present era of MLS? And what era are we in? Are we in, is this 3.0? Are we, where, where are we? Yeah, I don't know. Is it, at some point, someone at Apple is, gonna, is going to, uh, to commercialize this, uh, <laughs> this software notation that, we've, uh, that our broken, diseased <laughs> brains have internalized as like the timekeeping method for this league. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I don't know if it's 3.6 or, or 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 if there's a patch or what, but uh, yeah, I would say we're we're so far along maybe that we can't that, that we've lost track numerically, and you'd probably even a, even an MLS audience of uh, hardcores would struggle to reach consensus on that. Um, I you know I uh, I write for the league website, right? So so it's easy for me to um, to be I think portrayed or or perceived as as uh, you know, bias towards the league or in the bag for it. But uh, I don't look at it that way. I mean, I, to me, it's um, I recognize and accept the, the, the presence of, of MLS. It's now, I think, by and large, a good thing that it has moved past the survival phase. And when I started writing about this league, it was very much not past that, right? It was, it was hemorrhaging money. Uh, had had just you know I think I first started covering I started covering DC United in midway through the 2004 season. Um, there were still only a handful of soccer specific stadiums. There were 12 teams in the league at that point, I believe. Uh, it, it was it's scarcely recognizable, and and I don't judge the growth so much by the number of teams. The infrastructure is physical infrastructure is important, but I've seen the growth in quality, and that's and I say that having. Uh, you know, I worked on the editorial desk before I became the national writer f- for MLS soccer, and I covered a lot of matches. I watched a lot of bad soccer. Um, you know, I went to a Chivas USA game, actually, when I happened to be in L.A. Um, in 2013, I want to say it was. I-, I sat in the press box at a uh, pretty much empty, uh, it was then the Home Depot Center, watching uh, a dead-end team play a, a meaningless, you know, late summer game. And if you could compare that, it's just, it's hard to compare that to, to like the game I wrote about last weekend, which was S- Seattle at SC Cincinnati, uh, a sellout crowd at this gorgeous stadium in, in, in the heart of Cincinnati um, with this group of fans who, um, whose team got absolutely thrashed 
repeatedly and embarrassingly for the first three years in MLS and won the wooden spoon three years running and are now in, you know, in 12 months gone from absolute punchlines to a really ferocious squad sending players to the national team. That's, that is uh, fun to watch, you know, and, and I, I don't, you know, we can talk all, all day about comparing MLS and finding, figuring out its place in the league, in the sort of the constellation of, of global leagues and, um, and that's natural and that's very American to, to aspire to, to be dissatisfied with your league not being the top. And I don't think it's going to be a top league for some time. But the, the progress uh, in terms of the, the aesthetics of the product and the degree to which it, it prepares domestic players for higher levels is, is just stunning to me if I, when I stop and, and sort of take, take scope of that. And uh, and I think I'm also really in, encouraged that uh, expansion has been, uh, you know, there's some 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 negative byproducts to, to expansion and some bigger questions that it has sort of kicked the can on. But um, there's real diversity in the league now, especially considering we're talking about a single entity structure, right? Like that used to be owned by, um, you could you could fit all the owners in a phone book when I started covering this league. And now you have you know, multiple nations, multiple soccer cultures, multiple sensibilities represented and, and different ways of working when you look around the league. And I think a lot of the things that, that bother people about this league will over time, I'm, 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 when I'm confident, it's that that diversity and that dynamism in even at the top levels will, will eventually pu- keep pushing it in a positive direction. Yeah, Absolutely. And when you look at the coming year, I mean, you write about Americans abroad, you write about MLS, you write about it all. What are the stories that you are looking forward to telling the most over the coming year? And what stories should we look out for from you other than Tim Ream dropping momentarily, <laughs> it sounds like? Uh, I think some of the stuff that uh, that I'm most proud of uh, that I've, I've been working on and lately and, and continue to work on is, um, you know, we, as the league has become more relevant, I think there's more attention paid and more bandwidth for fans and others to, to, to let, to, to dive into the, um, the individual stories. And, and there's, you know, for every player, every staffer, every fan, there's, there's a story there. And, and uh, I love getting these opportunities to go into depth with, with these people and and bring a little bit of it to light maybe and maybe just um just put put a new angle on stuff and that those are the the things that i enjoy working on and so i have um i'm in in process on something um fun um about well i've got you know so the ream thing is coming out i've got a couple other kind of features and profiles like that that um that i'm excited about and then um you know if we go back to your your stomping grounds i'm really intrigued at this um thread of uh super teams or 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 big clubs quote unquote and, and put you know put quotes around all this stuff but like in this league that's been so obsessed with parody from the jump and still has it i think sort of hardwired into its structure um will the bigger teams and not just big financially and size wise but the more successful teams like even philadelphia union and i, I love that we have these two contrasting um uh defending champs on either side and either conference with LAFC and, and Philly who do things very differently and spend different amounts of money, but are extremely effective at what they do and, uh, and have kind of interesting visions for themselves and for the future of the league. And I, I love watching those kind of big ideas bounce off each other. And, um, and I, I hope we, uh, I, I, I wonder, I think there's somewhere in there, there's, there's the key to like what the, what the future of the league is going to be. Yeah, very cool. Just so I can get you on record, who do you think's winning the Supporters Shield and who's winning? Uh, <laughs> uh, I hate predictions. I hate predictions. Nothing, nothing gets draws so much heat uh, or so much light with so so little heat, or maybe it's the other way around um, in, in this business. Uh, it's a fool's game, especially in MLS. But um, I, I think I think from what I've seen in very early returns, the first three weeks, I urge. Again, when it's my when it's my place or opportunity to sh- to share my opinion, um, I always want to see MLS teams take taking uh, outside competitions like CCL, and I think it'll apply to Leagues Cup as well. Even though it's you know you can debate whether it's truly an outside competition, but like the, those kind of things matter, and I think those are important. And if you get if you qualify for CCL, like go and try and win the damn thing, and if you have to sacrifice 
a few early season league results on that altar, then uh, then go do that because it's just so hard to, to get there, right? And so anybody who even goes halfway in that direction um, is at a disadvantage in the shield race. So while I think LAFC and and uh, Philly are absolute beasts and they just they churn up everything that goes before them just by their their mentality and their way of playing, they're just reliably a, a bitch to play against, you know, week to week in, week out, they're still going to have their attention split to some extent. And so that's where I think, I think Seattle has a real opportunity. The Sounders are, uh, uh, are such a proven group with such an e- excellent internal culture. Uh, I, I think they're, they have a little bit of a, of, of a leg up just because they can focus on that. Where can people find you, Charles? Uh, starting point, I guess, like it or not, for better or worse, for lack of a better alternative, is twitter.com. Um, I'm at cboehm, at C-B-O-E-H-M. Most of my work I throw on there. And you can uh, even get in the DMs if you uh, if you really need to get in touch. And then, yeah, like you said, mlssoccer.com, ussoccerplayers.com week to week. And then every once in a while, uh, I can, can convince other sites to uh, – to, to give me a byline. So, um, but yeah, Twitter's where, where most of it starts. Charles, it has been a pleasure. Thank you for joining us. Likewise.